if you're new here, my name is Obed, and I am the pastor, one of the pastors for King's Cross Church. Um, and as a church, we are passionate about being a church family on mission with Jesus Christ in this city. Um, and it's a joy to have you guys here this morning. Currently, we're in the book of Philippians, and that is the letter Paul wrote to a first century church in the city of Philippi. Um, and we're in chapter three. And so if you have your Bibles, whether you have a hard copy version like mine, or you have a digital version, um, please turn to the book of Philippians chapter three. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to 14. Through to 14, verses 1 to 14. Lovely. <clears throat> As always, in our effort to honor um, God's word, may you please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14 reads, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that reveal to us who you are, um, what you've done for us, and how you call us to live. And so this morning, as we look at the topic of legalism and the tendency um, for us, because of our pride, to try and gain your love and your acceptance, God, I pray that as we do, we would become more and more appreciative of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the one that has done it all for us. And as a result of his sacrificial death and resurrection, um, we are loved by you. And that we don't have to strive in order to gain your love, but we live the way you've called us to. We obey you out of the love you have for us because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for these truths. And as we reflect on them still more, God, I pray that our hearts would warm to Christ more and more. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. All right, normally, <clears throat> if you guys know me, I don't show photos, okay? The only thing I show on the screen are, you know, the scriptures and quotes, but I really show any graphics or photos like that. But this morning, um, I thought I would, 
because I want to make an important announcement, an announcement that would surprise many of you. And that announcement is depicted by the picture on your screen. That's me, and that is the new addition to our family. If you are new, the reason why some of our people are laughing is because a year ago, or I would say three months ago, if you have told me that I would have a dog living in my house, I would have laughed at you. I would have said, no way. It's a surprise to me and a surprise to so many of you that know me that my family and I have this four-legged cuteness living in our house. In April, one of our neighbors messaged Eleanor and, okay, you can take him off now, right? He's <laughs> taking all the attention. That's what they do. <laughs> in April, one of our neighbors sent a text message to my wife, Eleanor, and invited her and the kids to come to his house and meet some puppies. What, has, what had happened is his multi-poo had become intimate with a Boston Terrier several months ago, and as a result, she gave birth to three cute puppies. As soon as Eleanor and the kids met the puppies, that was it, all right? The initial plan was, we're just going to go and say hello to the puppies, but I know what my neighbor was doing. I know what he was doing. And so they came back, they had his meeting with puppies, so cute, oh, and they came back, and they were convinced we needed to adopt one. I told them, no way. There's no way we're having a dog living in my house. They said, Dad, please, we would love to. We, we, we want to do everything that we can um, to get your approval. And so I said to my three cute kids, if you really want a dog, we cannot afford a dog at the moment, okay? If you know it's free, we've got vaccines, we've got dog food for however long the dog you know, lives, and it's going to be expensive. <laughs> Sorry. You know, it's true. <clears throat> and so I said to them, if you want the dog, you've got to figure out how to make the money for it, okay? You've got to figure out how to pay for it. And so they said, okay, Dad. My kids, now I'm so proud of them. What they did was they started baking, okay? They make these delicious lemon bars. And they baked a few lemon bars. They designed a sign that said, donate to our puppy fund. And they went round our neighborhood, knocking on the doors. They also did a few um, lemonade stands by the bay. They went and stood there, made some lemonade, and said it was fresh, but it was half fresh, but not fully. They used <laughs> Vons, a mix from Vons or something. I'm just being honest. But they did squeeze some lemon into it. <laughs> so it's freshly made. And they stood by the bay. People would come across, and they would be like, hey, donate to our puppy fan. And they had a picture of the puppy, you know. <laughs> and so combined, for several weeks, they'd done this fundraising. And combined, they raised over $500. When they told me they had the funds for the dog, I didn't know how to react. <laughs> As a father, I was like, wow, I am so proud of you kids. But then I was like, they've actually done it. <laughs> My kids worked hard in order to earn my approval for a puppy. When I tell people about this story, and um, what they do is they do applaud the kids, right? But they also applaud me for being a good parent. They go, man, that was a fantastic idea. 
and you are instilling in them the, the, the virtues and the qualities of hard work. I challenged my kiddos to earn my approval for a dog by earning the money for it, and they did it. And this principle of working to earn something is something we all value, right, in our culture. If you want something, you actually work hard to go and earn it. But the interesting thing is, within our Christianity as Christians, if we apply this same principle of hard work and working to earn something, and we apply it especially to our relationship with God and the salvation we have, we become uncomfortable. It becomes a problem. And the reason is, when we start to do that, we start to think about how can we earn what God has already given us or sustain what God has already given us, we start to really begin to embrace what theologians called legalism. In Christian theology, legalism is the idea that by doing good works or by being obedient to the law, a person earns and merits salvation. Thomas Schreiner, who's an author and theologian, says this, legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. Like the term Trinity, the word legalism is not find, found anywhere in the Bible, but instead it's described and the principles of it are clearly outlined in the Bible. And so in our passage for this morning, um, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to um, first century Christians in the city of Philippi, addresses the issue of legalism. Oh, I love the book of Philippians. It surprised me so many times. When I started to um, study this passage, I had a different perspective of what it was all about. But the more I dug deep, deep into it, the more I realize that what Paul is addressing is the existence of legalism, and he wants to prove to us, to the Philippians first, and now to us, uh, that legalism is not enough when it comes to us trying to earn God's love and acceptance. And so this morning, we're, we're going to be made aware of our ongoing threat of legalism, the root of legalism, and the reality that legalism will not be enough. First, if you're making notes, legalism is an external threat. Legalism is an external threat. And so Paul begins this section of his letter to the Christians in Philippi with a command to rejoice in the Lord. If you've noticed, uh, this shouldn't be a surprise to you because the theme of joy, the theme of rejoicing in the Lord, um, it appears numerous times in this letter. Over and over again, what Paul does is he reminds the Philippians to look to Jesus for true and lasting joy. In verse 1, he assures them that he's totally fine reminding them to rejoice in the Lord because it's of great benefit to them. He says it's a safeguard for you. And the reason he commands them here to rejoice in the Lord again is because he has become aware of one of the greatest threats to the joy they have in Christ, which is legalism. And that legalism is coming through a group of people he describes in verse 2 as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And so look at verse 2. He says to them, outright, from the start, he goes, watch out. So this is a warning. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, and those mutilators of the flesh. And so the question is, who's Paul talking about? All right? Who is he talking about? Who are those dogs? Who are those evildoers? And who are those mutilators of the flesh? In case you're wondering, okay, when Paul warns the Philippians to watch out for those dogs, he's not talking about my cute, cuddly puppy, 
right, or your loyal companion, or most of the dogs that reside in the city of San Diego, right? San Diego loves dogs, right? And so Paul's not talking about those cute little things that we are very familiar with. No, to understand what he's referring to, we have to first understand that in those days, in the first century, in those ancient times, dogs were not as loved and domesticated as they are right now. In fact, dogs were considered wild animals, just like coyotes or foxes, and what they would do is roam the dusty streets of the Middle East without a home and without an owner, and what they would do is they would feed on the garbage of the streets, and they would fight among themselves and attack passers-by. One author says this, first century Israelites didn't have pets, and they had no use for dog food, okay? No dog food, okay? Dogs were coyote-like scavengers who fed on roadkill, carrying filth and garbage. They were vivid images of their unclean. And so in those days, dogs represented everything that was nasty, unclean, and dangerous. Because of this, Jews who consider themselves clean because they thought they were the people of God, right, um, would refer to Gentiles, non-Jews, who they considered as unclean, as dogs. In view of this, those days, the word dogs was a term of contempt Jews would use against Gentiles. But when Paul uses the term dogs here, he's not using it in the same way. He's not telling the Christians in Philippi to watch out for Gentiles, to watch out for non-Christian, for non-Jews. And we know this because in the church of Philippi, there were both Jews and non-Jews, okay? And so he's not saying, watch out for um, Gentiles. No, he's not saying that. And so the question is, who's Paul referring to here? Who are those dogs? He was referring to a religious sect known as the Judaizers, okay? The Judaizers. In those days, Judaizers were Jewish Christians, Jewish, who, Jewish Jews who had become Christians who believed this. They believed that circumcision and observance of the Mosaic law was necessary for salvation. They held to the belief that salvation wasn't only through Jesus, but also through obeying the law of Moses. They insisted that circumcision was necessary for salvation. They held to the belief that Gentiles had to become Jewish first, and then they could come to Christ and this false teaching is exactly why Paul gets riled up and says that the Judaizers, not the Gentiles, deserve to be called dogs. They're the ones who are unclean and dangerous because their legalistic, because of their legalistic mindset um, to salvation. Look at what Tony Merida says. He says, Paul say, states that a dramatic reversal has taken place through the work of Christ. Now it's the Judaizers who must be regarded as dogs. Paul also refers to the Judaizers as evildoers. In their eyes, Judaizers, they viewed obedience to certain laws as good works that made them righteous before God. And so, however, Paul comes along and exposes them and says, what you think is good, what you think is noble, is actually evil. Paul also describes the Judaizers as mutilators of the flesh. Some of you are like, what is that? What is this mutilators of the flesh all about? I kind of know what evil doers are. What is this? So the word mutilate is katatomi in Greek. It's a sarcastic play on the word circumcision. And so what Paul means here by mutilators of the flesh is circumcision, but he uses the term to speak against the value the Judaizers placed on circumcision. 
they required all non-Jews to be circumcised if they wanted to become Christians. However, Paul doesn't see their insistence on circumcision as something beautiful or noble. In fact, he regards it as an ugly example of mutilation. And so Paul warns the church in Philippi to beware of the Judaizers, and he describes them as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because they went around promoting the false teaching. Listen to me. Promoting the false teaching that in order for a Christian to truly be right with God, he or she must live by the law of Moses. I love what Mayer says here. He says, they did not deny that Jesus was the Messiah or that his gospel was the power of God unto salvation, but they insisted that the Gentile converts could only come to the fullness of gospel privilege through the law of Moses. There are many groups today with beliefs and practices that are very similar to the Judaizers in those days. For example, on Netflix, there's a documentary um, uh, about an extreme version, right, of this, and is about the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they taught this. They taught that the more wives a man has, the better his chances are receiving the highest form of salvation. Another modern version of Judaizers can be, for example, the televangelists. And what they do is that they insist that the more money you give to their ministry, the greater God will bless you. Or there are some churches who teach this, that you must get baptized, you must speak in tongues in order to complete your salvation. Religious groups like the Judaizers of Paul's day haven't gone away. They are still alive and well. And they are out there preaching a false gospel. And the gospel is not the true gospel whenever we insist on an individual doing something in addition to what Jesus has done in order to be saved. And so Paul's warning to the church in Philippi is relevant for us. King's Cross Church. Watch out. Let's watch out for anyone who teaches a false gospel. Let's watch out for anyone who teaches that you have to, we have to add something to what Jesus has done in order to be saved. To add anything to the work that Christ did for salvation is to negate God's grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by returning to the law or doing something. I love Romans um, chapter 11, verse 6. Paul clarifies this here. He says, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And so we've seen that legalism is an external threat. And next, if you're making notes, we're going to see that legalism is self-produced. It's self-generated. Let me remind you of something, that the Jewish faith, in the Jewish faith, circumcision was a big deal. And the reason why is it was a sign of dedication to God. It was also viewed 
as a physical sign that set the Jews apart from the world around them, identifying them as God's people. And so the Jewsizers, who Paul described as dogs, evildoers, and mult mutilators of the flesh, they may consider themselves the ones truly circumcised. They consider themselves the ones who are truly God's people. But in verse 3, Paul argues that they're wrong to believe this. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for it is we, we, he's talking about Christians, okay, people that have been saved by grace. He's saying, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. And so what he's doing, he's saying, all of those guys, the Judaizers, all right, who are saying you must add to what Jesus has done in order to be saved and in order to be accepted in God's family, they're totally wrong. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are the circumcision, you are God's people. And you are the ones that God has saved through his spirit. And you are the ones that boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. The term put no confidence in the flesh is very interesting. It should have stood out to you, okay? And you're like, what does it mean? This term basically means that we don't depend on anything or anyone outside of Jesus Christ to give us confidence in the flesh. Um, to put no confidence in the flesh, right, is a refusal to rely on who we are and what we've done to make us right before God, but it's a commitment to rely only on who Jesus is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Paul carries on. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in their flesh, I have more. And so Paul's like, look, as Christians, we're not supposed to put confidence in the flesh. We're not supposed to trust in ourselves and our works for salvation. But if we were, okay, if mere religious efforts could gain anyone acceptance with God, then I would be top of the list. And so why? If anybody could gain God's favor through personal piety, why does the apostle Paul claim he'll be top of the list? We have our answer in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. Paul says, look, this is the reason why I'd be top of the list if mere works could get us into heaven oh yeah, and get us favor of God. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. As I read that, some of you are like, what's the big deal? Like circumcision on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, what's the big deal? Okay? If you were a first century Jew, you would be very impressed. This is a description of a man who had reached the very pinnacle of moral and religious dis development. Paul was circumcised when he was eight days old. He was also part of God's chosen people because he was of the people of Israel. He was not only part of the nation of Israel, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Being a member of the tribe of Benjamin, there were 12 tribes in Israel. Two of them were the most elite, and one of them, one of them was Benjamin. He was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. No one could have been more Jewish um, than Paul. Yesterday, my son Jesse, we were playing with Messi. Our dog's called Messi, okay? He's called Messi. And, um, you know, we were playing with him. <laughs> and I was like, Jesse, oh, it's so cool that we're playing with Messi now. And um, you're my boy. I said it to Jesse, and I'm so proud of you. You're my son. And uh, he said to me, oh, isn't Messi your son as well? And I was like, 
I get what he's saying, but mercy is not actually, I get it, he's male and he's in our house and he's young, but you are my boy. And I said to him, you are my true boy, my boy boy kind of thing, okay? Messi is my boy, but he's a dog boy kind of thing. <laughs> and so in a similar way, when Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's saying, I'm a legit Jew, okay? I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Boy, boy, dog boy, 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 yeah? Paul was also a member of the Pharisees, which meant he was a member of the strictest religious sects of his day who demanded a strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He was so zealous um, for his religion and his people, he persecuted Christians. And the reason why he persecuted Christians was that according to them, they saw Christianity as a threat. And so Paul wanted to do everything he could to protect his people and his religion. And so he persecuted the church and he obeyed without the law. He obeyed the law without fault. So Paul was a rock star in the Jewish world. He was like Michael Jordan in the basketball world. He was like Warren Buffett. Buffett? Buffett? How do you pronounce it? Buffett, thank you, should be buffet, um, <laughs> in the business world, think of whatever context that you're in, whether it's your job, where, wherever, who is the legendary person, who's Hall of Fame, in a similar way, Paul would have definitely been enlisted in the Hall of Fame in the Jewish world. Humanly speaking, he had acquired all the assets that anyone could imagine. He was one of the most successful Jews of his time. He had risen highest in moral, religious, and spiritual rank. And before he became a Christian, these were the things he relied on to give him confidence in the presence of God. Before he encountered Christ, he looked to these things, right? These attributes and these achievements as what made him confident in the presence of God, as what made him right before God. Legalism is not just a threat from the outside. But I would say... Legalism is an issue within me, you, and the person sitting next to you. The problem, we all have reasons to put confidence in the flesh when it comes to our relationship with God. We're all prone to relying on our attributes and achievements Paul relied on himself for salvation. And some of you here this morning are not Christians or you're considering being a Christian. And what I want you to think about is what are you doing in order to gain God's love and acceptance? Who or what are you looking to? Because the only way you can be saved is to make an informed decision to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. To look at Jesus Christ. To look at his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. And identify Jesus Christ as who he was. He was God in human flesh. And say, Jesus Christ, I believe in you and I trust in you. And your trust in Jesus alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, is what will make you right before a holy God who is the creator of the universe. 
before he became a Christian, Paul believed that God loved and accepted him because of his ethnic identity, his faultless obedience to the law and radical commitment to a religion. Just like Paul, some of you are living with that mindset. And you've been led to believe that God only approves of you because of who you are and what you've done. You live with the mindset that God's approval rating of you is sky high when you're doing really well and suddenly declines when you fail. Paul had reasons for confidence in the flesh and so do you. And let me just say, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are still susceptible to this. You are still prone um, um, to, to, to thinking that you can do good works in order to sustain um, the salvation God has given you. Being legalism still lurks in our hearts and at times steers our actions. And so if you're a Christian in here, the question is, what's your confidence in? Why do you think God loves you? What are you most likely to lean on and trust in in order to sustain God's love for you? Who or what outside of Christ are you looking to or relying on to give you confidence in God's presence? Outside of Jesus, who or what are you most likely to trust in to give you confidence in God's presence? In other words, who else or what else is your functional savior? Back to Messi, the dog. It's going to be all about dogs, not just for this, <laughs> but like lots of sermons. It's crazy. And so the kids raise the money they need in order to bring Messi into our house. And I realized something after several weeks of messy in our house. I realized something. I realized that I am not the best parent. I'm not. Sometimes I think I'm awesome, but I realized that I'm not the best parent because somehow I had led my kids to believe that they have to maintain a high level of responsibility for Messi to keep Messi, the dog. And this is how it plays out, okay? When they did all their fundraising, got all the money, I said, that is great, let's bring the dog in. But I also said to them, the work starts now, kids. You have to look after Messi. You have to do the, all the training. I'm not picking up poop. You, I want to see you guys picking up all the poop, everything. And because they were excited to have Messi, they were like, yes, we're going to pick up poop. <laughs> we're going to do it all. And they've been doing a good job. But there are times when they do fail. And when they do, and I get mad because there's poop in my house. I go, there's poop in my house. No, and I'm freaking out they get really paranoid and start doing everything they can to clean it up. And I realized this, that I have led them to believe that they have to sustain this level of commitment in order to keep messy because they fear that if they don't keep up this level of responsibility, one day I'm going to say, that is it. You guys have failed. You cannot keep messy. That is it. And so their works and their hard works are based on their desire to keep messy. Where as a dad, I have no intention of like saying, messy has to go now. No intention, but they think I do. And that is how we like to as Christians relate to God when it comes to our salvation. We like to think that we have to keep up this level of responsibility, 
of doing all of our Bible reading, praying all the time, and just ticking all the boxes in order to sustain the gift of grace God has given us. And so King's Cross Church, may you know, may you believe, may you hold on to the truth that God has saved you. God has saved you. And his sustaining unwavering love for you doesn't depend on how well you perform. Because it had nothing to do with you in the first place. It was all about Christ when you were saved. And it's all about Christ as you are being sanctified as a Christian. So as we talk about legalism, um, we've looked at legalism as an external threat. We've looked at legalism as, a, as self-produced. Lastly, we'll look at legalism, uh, the truth that legalism is not enough. Legalism <laughs> is not enough. If anyone could have earned their way to heaven, Paul would have been at the top of the list. We've seen his credentials. But what happened to Paul, and this account is in Acts chapter 9, after persecuting, after leading the charge to persecute or martyr or put Stephen, one of the key leaders of the church, early church, to death, um, Paul makes his way, starts to make his way um, to a city called Damascus. And his goal in Damascus was to persecute more Christians. And on the way, on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? He encounters the risen Jesus. Jesus appears to him in a vision and says to Paul, Paul, stop persecuting me. And at that time, Paul realized that this was the risen Jesus and that he was persecuting Jesus by persecuting his people. And so Paul, at that moment, is radically saved. And he becomes a Jesus follower. That experience altered his whole worldview so much so that things, that things he once valued, he started to view as worthless. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. All right, look at verse 7 again. Um, uh, you'll notice that Paul uses accounting terms to explain that his identity as a Jew, his Jewish upbringing, his education as a Jew, and his religious accomplishments are no longer profitable to him, but he now considers all of those things as loss, as a deficit. In verse 8, he further describes the Things he once valued as garbage or rubbish. The Greek word for garbage or rubbish is skybalon. The term literally means dung, excrement, or manure. And as the Philippians were reading this letter and they got to this point where Paul describes his past attributes and accomplishments um, as, uh, as garbage, they would, have, they would have been like, wow, that's intense. And that is because Paul here is using strong language to describe how he now views his former life. He now views everything he had valued as garbage. They were once the most valuable things in his life, but they're now the most worthless. 
he used to value his nationality, his upbringing, his education and self-effort and religion, but now he views them as loss and garbage. John MacArthur says this, all the, <coughs> all the cherished treasures in his gain column suddenly became deficits. And the question is why? Why has his view of what he valued changed? Why does he now view all of his earthly treasures and accomplishments as deficits, as worthless? Look at verse 7 and 8 again. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. This is saturated with Jesus. The reason why Paul now considers the things he once valued as now lost and garbage is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done for him. His encounter with Jesus radically changed his life. Right? He, he changed him from someone who hated Jesus and hated the followers of Jesus to someone who became one of the most passionate followers for Jesus. But his encounter with Jesus also changed where he placed his confidence. It helped him come to the realization that who he was and all that he had achieved could never be enough to gain God's love and acceptance. But he came to realize that who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and accomplished for him was what was enough to gain God's love and acceptance. Look at verse 9 to see how he unpacks this a bit more. He says, and be found in him. Not in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Because of his relationship with Jesus, Paul now recognizes that he is loved and accepted by God, not because of his obedience, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul now recognizes that everything he trusted in to gain God's love and approval is worthless because the only way to gain God's love and approval is through faith in Christ. He is loved and accepted by God because of what he's done, not because of what he's done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for him. Charles Swindle says, what his spiritually blinded eyes had seen as a boatload of treasures, the light of Christ had revealed as a pile of manure. In case you've missed it, legalism is not enough and will never be enough. We aren't righteous on our own. We aren't even good. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that God can look at us as if we lived Christ's perfect life. When we put legalistic requirements on ourselves and others, we remove the power and necessity of Christ. We elevate ourselves and we dangerously assume we have the capacity to please God on our own. Ray Burns, who's a pastor, says, God doesn't only care about our actions. He wants our hearts first because a heart that loves him will naturally produce works that glorify him. He doesn't need us to act righteous. He wants us to love him so that he can produce righteousness in us. Without Christ, any good thing we produce will be utterly worthless. Thus, the solution to legalism isn't less rules, but more Christ. That's why, that's why look, Paul concludes this whole section, okay, of the letter in this way. Look at verses 10 to 14, right? Let's read it. He goes, I want to know Christ. 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings because like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not count, consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so King's Cross Church, who or what are you trusting in? If you find yourself moving towards legalistic lifestyle. The goal is not less rules. Let me take things off my plate. The goal is to gaze and fix your eyes and affection on Jesus Christ. Because the more you do, the more you'll discover how Greatly, God loves you. And the more you desire to live a life that glorifies him, not because you want to gain his love, but because he has displayed his love towards you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> And so, Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would sharpen our view and affections towards Christ. And as you do, may we let go of all the things we are looking to and trying to do to gain your love so that we may hold on to Christ and be enamored with him and consumed with who he is. All we have is Christ because Christ is enough. Our good works, our legalism can never be enough, but Christ is enough. And so Holy Spirit, as we begin to conclude by singing and celebrating communion and receiving prayer. And in this moment, we're about to step in. May you, may Christ be exalted. And as Christ is exalted, may all of our hearts be drawn to him. Do what we can never do with our words. May you compel many this morning to become passionately in love with Christ. Amen. <clears throat>